This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements, and he was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. In this 14th episode of Lab Rat Chat, Danielle and I talk with another amazing scientist from Texas Biomed, Dr. Christopher Chin, whose lab has worked tirelessly to find a new model for hepatitis B after the retirement of chimpanzees from research, which has led his team to investigate the use of the squirrel monkey. Dr. Chin breaks down why the squirrel monkey is such a great model and tells us all we need to know and more about hepatitis B research. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this 14th episode of Lab Rat Chat. everyone, and welcome to this episode of Lab Rat Chat, where Danielle and I will be talking with Dr. Christopher Chin, a scientist and assistant director for research support at the Southwest National Primate Research Center. And as always, before we jump right into the episode, please get out there and rate and review Lab Rat Chat on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Stitcher or Podchaser or really anywhere else where you can find that you can rate and review podcasts. And like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Follow us and you can always email Danielle and myself directly at labratchat at gmail.com with any feedback that you have. And we usually try to respond to those messages individually. So feel free to reach out. I'm sounding like a broken record here, but the more followers we have, the more recognition the show will receive. And it truly does make a difference. So thank you for taking a couple minutes to do this, which will allow us to continue producing episodes with interesting and exciting guests, just like the one we have today with Dr. Christopher Chen. So Dr. Chen, thank you for joining us today. And if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and what led you to your position at Texas Biomed. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, so a little bit about me. I grew up kind of in my college days, right around the time that the first draft of the genome sequence was being completed. When I was in college, the human genome was really an exciting place to be. I was studying biology at Purdue University. And really, there was uh, just endless possibilities at that time of what could be done with all that genetic knowledge. Uh, I happened to have a, my grandfather, who was also a Purdue professor uh, before he had retired and passed away, had a genetic disease. It's called polycystic kidney disease. So I was very interested in studying genetics and potentially working on something that could lead to a treatment for this disease that happened to run in my family. So after I finished up at Purdue, I went to Baylor College of Medicine, which is in Houston, Texas, for grad school. They were one of the seven centers that was played a large role in the sequencing of the human genome. So they had a really great genetics program. I started working in a lab there that worked in a field called gene therapy, where you try to deliver corrective genes to treat genetic diseases. And so my big plan was, you know, to, at one point to kind of use that technique, this gene therapy technique, to treat this genetic kidney disease that ran in my family, polycystic kidney disease. So I started out at uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, like I said. Uh, my boss ended up taking a position at the Mayo Clinic, so I went with him to finish my degree up at the Mayo Clinic. And then when I finished my PhD, which was the goal of the research that I was doing there was to find different ways to target these kind of viruses that you use to deliver genes to specific tissues, or if you're looking to treat cancer, then to specifically infect a cancer cell, for instance. And so I tried to use that information, then apply it to polycystic kidney disease. So I did two postdocs, one also at the Mayo Clinic. Very fortunate that one of the experts in polycystic kidney disease was at the Mayo Clinic. His name is Peter Harris. He did clone the, the major gene in polycystic kidney disease called PKD1. And then after that postdoc, I went to another postdoc at Yale University where another famous researcher in the field, Stefan Samlo, 
who cloned the second major gene for the disease PKD2 was over there. So I got to work with two of the experts in the field, uh, had this great background knowledge of gene therapy, uh, had some ideas for how to develop some gene therapies for the disease. And then life took a couple of turns. So I, I got married and uh, followed my wife around through her medical training a little bit. So we ended up going back to the Mayo Clinic for one of her fellowships. Uh, she's a physician. She's a liver doctor. So she did her hepatology fellowship back at the Mayo Clinic. So we went back to the Mayo Clinic. And when she finished that, she got a job in San Antonio with a private practice called the Texas Liver Institute. So San Antonio is a, a hot spot for uh, liver disease. South Texas is a, a hot area for liver disease. It's just very prevalent in this part of the country. So yeah, so they have, a, they have a great organization, Texas Liver Institute. They do a lot of research there. And I followed her down here. And when I came down, my wife, Nicole, her employers uh, had a great connection with Texas Biomed and Southwest National Primate Research Center, as they do a lot of the clinical research that follows preclinical research that's done at Texas Biomed and Southwest National Primate Research Center. So they hooked me up with... Um, the expert in liver disease at Texas Biomed, his name is Dr. Robert Lanford. He was the director of the Primate Center at the time. And Dr. Lanford brought me into his lab to use some of those gene therapy techniques to help develop new models for liver disease. So a lot of liver disease had been modeled uh, in the chimpanzee, and the chimpanzee is no longer being used for biomedical research. It's an endangered species. And so new models were needed and none of the other primates were quite as good as the chimpanzee for replicating the disease. So we were trying to use some new techniques to try to, to improve the models. So I know we're kind of specifically talking about your unique research with hepatitis B today. Maybe you could first tell our listeners a little bit about what hep B is, um, how someone gets infected, what it does to the body, and how long the infection can last. Yeah, so hepatitis B, the infections, it's a bloodborne pathogen. So you can get it from blood exposure, drug users who share needles, can be sexually transmitted. And then one of the common ways that, uh, that people become chronically infected is if you have a mother who doesn't know that she's chronically infected, then you can become chronically infected during birth. Those are the main ways that, uh, that hep B is transmitted. The virus very often is just a, an acute infection. So most people, like let's say you were to get a needle stick from somebody who is chronically infected, what would first happen would be your acute infection phase, which actually starts symptomatically quite a bit later. So the virus you know, has to infect the liver and then spread throughout the liver. And then before you get these very high viral titers. So maybe months after your exposure, you would maybe feel typical viral infection types of symptoms, uh, fever and things of that nature. And then most people clear the virus and then some percentage, probably less than 5 or 10% would go on to become chronically infected. So that's a little bit different story than those people who are getting the virus when they do vertical transmission from a mother at birth. Those people have a very high probability of becoming chronically infected. So the immune system in, in babies is not very effective at, at warding off the virus. And so after that acute infection phase, you maintain a very high viral load and have this chronic infection. And so the virus is actually quite prevalent. There's about 257 million people worldwide who are chronically infected. That accounts for about 900,000 deaths a year. The reason that that number is so high is where this virus is very prevalent in, in Asia and in Africa screening is not a prevalent thing. So most people are going around, I would say probably less than 10% of people who are chronically infected are aware. So this kind of vertical transmission is a, a very common way for people to get infected in those parts of the world. So even when babies are born now, they're given the hepatitis B vaccine, usually the first day of life. Does getting that vaccine, if they were infected from the mother, would that prevent infection in any way? Or would that prevent them from being a chronic carrier of it? Or was that only just to prevent infection later in life if they weren't infected at birth? You know, that's a, an excellent question. I actually don't want to tell you the answer without being absolutely certain of the, the answer. I, 
I'm not exactly certain. I would imagine that would not be as effective for the baby. Again, you're being infected at a time before your immune system has really had a chance to develop the antibodies to ward off that virus early on. But it may reduce the probability that you're going to become chronically infected, potentially not eliminate that. Right. Yeah, I was just wondering. I mean, I know in veterinary medicine, we've learned about sometimes treatments for diseases or, you know, vaccinations which can just help reduce the exposure and produce perhaps minimize the effects of the virus on the body. So moving on then, Texas Biomed does have a pretty storied history when it comes specifically to hepatitis, uh, hepatitis B and C. So if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the amazing discoveries that you all have produced out of Texas Biomed over the years. Yeah, so hepatitis B and C are relatively new viruses. So hepatitis C was identified in 1989 and was cured by the year 2014. So in the grand scheme of if you compare it to, let's say, HIV, which was discovered before hepatitis C and and still doesn't have a cure, now we have the time between the identification of the virus in in 1989 and then time to cure 25 years, 2014, is quite important remarkable. And the the non-human primates that we have at Texas Biomed, Southwest National Primate Research Center, they played a, a large part of that. So a lot of those early drug developments were, like I said, tested at in chimpanzees at, at Southwest National Primate Research Center. And then, you know, some of those went on to clinical trials at places like Texas Liver Institute, where I mentioned my wife works, also in San Antonio, and pretty rapidly went on to, to getting FDA approval. So that's hepatitis C. Hepatitis B was identified in 1965. And the vaccine for it came out in the 1980s, early 1980s. So less than 15, 16 years before you had a a vaccine for hepatitis B in the United States in particular has kept the the prevalence of the virus to be relatively low. Probably one in about 100,000 people in the United States have chronic hepatitis B. Yeah, Texas Biomed, again, was uh, one of the places where some of those vaccines was experimented with. We continue to do new trials with various treatments for hepatitis B as well. Most of that was uh, originally done, again, in the chimpanzee. Well, I think we should talk more excited strictly about your research that you have going on at Texas Biomed with the hepatitis B. I know you mentioned chimpanzees can't be used anymore, so it sounds like you've also found a model in the squirrel monkey. What makes that such a good model for this? And let's just hear about your research specifically. Sure. So the squirrel monkey is a good model because the receptor for the virus happens to have a very similar sequence. And there's been a lot of research into, you know, what the receptor for hepatitis B, what particular amino acid residues are responsible for the entry of the virus. And so the squirrel monkey happens to have that conserved region of that protein. And the problem is that even with that conserved region, the protein, the infection with human hepatitis B doesn't lead to a, a chronic infection. And so the work that was done by Dr. Lanford before I joined the lab was the identification of a related virus to human hepatitis B in naturally occurring in woolly monkeys. So there was a woolly monkey from a, a zoo in St. Louis that was found to have a, a chronic hepatitis type of virus infection. Dr. Lanford isolated it and identified that it had very close relationship to human hep B. That was a a very promising model that we could generate a a chronic woolly monkey model, except that woolly monkeys are also endangered and can't be used for biomedical research. So the goal was to find some related monkey to woolly monkeys that would support the infection of this woolly monkey HBV chronically. And so squirrel monkeys are closely related. And again, they have the conserved residues of, of the receptor. So that's the direction that we went. 
And I don't know if you want me to get into the details of how we were able to get this virus to get semi-chronic infection. So we, we got an infection out to, to six months with this model, but we couldn't do it by just infecting the squirrel monkey with woolly monkey HPV. So in order to improve the infectivity of the squirrel monkey, what we did is trying to take advantage of some of my gene therapy background. And we took the viral genome from woolly monkey HPV and we inserted into another virus that infects the liver quite readily. It's called adeno-associated virus. It's a commonly used virus in, in gene therapy. So we essentially gutted the adeno-associated virus genome and replaced it with this woolly monkey HPV genome. So that allowed us to get the virus to very readily infect the liver cells of the squirrel monkey. And then once it was in the liver cells of the squirrel monkey, then the, it would naturally replicate and you would get wild-type woolly monkey HPV being produced. And so that's the virus that we were able to get to have sustained infection in those animals about to six months. So closer to chronic infection, not exactly modeling chronic infection, but it's getting that model in the right direction for being able to be used for treatments for chronic infection. Yeah, that's awesome. It's incredible. Very nice work. I'm just curious, what's a squirrel monkey's temperament like in the laboratory? What's it like working with squirrel monkey colonies? I've never definitely a species I've never worked with in the lab. So just wondering. Yeah, so they're, they're a small monkey. I'll be honest, at Southwest National Primate Research Center, all the animal handling is done by the veterinary services staff. I don't actually get to physically work with the animals, but I, I'm told that they're super cute. <laughs> yeah, I pulled up some pictures. So I can agree. Temperament-wise, they are you know, one of the easier monkey species to work with. That's my understanding. What does having this new animal model, the squirrel monkey, do for the research community, for you guys at Texas Biomed and for other people working with hepatitis B? And what's the next step for you guys over there in utilizing this model that you've you know, discovered now towards leading towards a potential cure? Or, you know, what kind of hope does this give someone out there that may be chronically infected with hepatitis B? Yeah, so we're only a few years out from kind of the halting of the use of the chimpanzee model. And so when chimpanzees stopped being used, it kind of left the field without a, a good model to continue testing new curative treatments, right? We, so we have a vaccine, but we would really like to have is a cure. So current treatment for hepatitis B is a daily regimen of drugs that suppresses the virus. So it doesn't get rid of the virus. It just keeps the virus from replicating. So the viral titers stay, stay low or relatively undetectable. If you were to, to stop taking those drugs, then the, the virus would rebound essentially and you'd go right back up to having a significant chronic infection. So the goal is to develop drugs that, um, or once you are off of them, the virus is, is suppressed to a level that it, you wouldn't have a rebound of virus. In order to develop those drugs, we need to have a model to test them in. And without the chimpanzee, we were left without a model. So having the squirrel monkey model now gives us something that we can use, right? So we, if you can get six months of chronic infection from with that model, then then you could potentially test in the squirrel monkeys. I think people who are you know in the field developing treatments want a model that's a little bit more close to the human condition. So a little bit higher viral titers than we were able to show in the squirrel monkeys and whose viremia would persist beyond the six months that we were able to show. The next step for us is to really see if we can get those two things to happen, get higher viral titers and to get longer persistence of the virus. And the ways that we're looking at doing that right now are kind of doing the same Trojan horse AAV delivery of the virus to the animals, but doing it in very young animals. So kind of modeling the same infection that you see in humans where they're getting infected at birth. The studies that we had done using the AAV before were done in adults. So we'd like to do those in newborn animals to see if they become chronically infected. 
And the other option would be in adults to kind of mimic the newborn status of the immune system by doing some kind of immune suppression before you do the infection. So the other option is to do it in adults, but to, to deliver some kind of immunosuppressant to those animals while you're giving them the initial dose of only monkey HBV. And hopefully one or both of those methods will allow us to have a better representation of the human disease in the squirrel monkeys. That's interesting stuff. You know, I think some of it might be a little hard to follow. For me, you know, this isn't common language that I use all the time, but hopefully our listeners can take some stuff away from this really informative episode. Something that we like to ask all of our guests is, you know, if you're kind of trapped in a social situation where someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you kind of address working with animal research or do you even bring it up? And have you gotten any interesting reactions from them? To be completely honest, I think you know, if I don't know somebody at all, then uh, I'm going to be a little bit hesitant to yeah. to inform them that I, that I do animal research because I think that I don't have enough time most of the time to really get into an in-depth conversation and to really explain the value of animal research. If you just say you do animal research and that conversation doesn't go anywhere, then that they may be left to their own conclusion of what that really means rather than to hear the scientific side of, of the value of it. So I would say a better example is maybe when I get to talk to my family about it, uh, you know, people who I do have a chance to really sit down and have a longer conversation with. The conversation usually goes in the direction of, of explaining the value of what we're doing. So like I mentioned, hepatitis B infects 257 million people worldwide, killing 900,000 people a year. And so if you think about the potential value of developing a curative treatment for the disease, I think that gives people a better perspective of the great value that a couple tens, hundreds of animals can have for millions of humans. And so I think that's the direction that those conversations go. Yeah, that's definitely a good approach and one that I take at times as well. So before we close out here, I just want to give you the chance if you have any final statements or thoughts, anything you want to cover that we haven't previously talked about already in this episode that you think maybe the public should know, you know, revolving around your research with hepatitis B, the use of animals and research in particular, or really just any other topic. I just would like to reemphasize the value of animals in research. I want to reassure that your audience that, you know, we have a fantastic veterinary care staff. They all care about the animals. Using the animals for our research, you know, we're doing it with the animals' welfare in mind. They're treated quite well. You know, we have lots of enrichment for them. A lot of these animals have a lot of space to move around in. Their diets are diverse. You know, I feel like they have a, a pretty good life. In my role as an administrator, I approve the food and the enrichment that we provide for them. And sometimes I think, oh, they, in some ways, they've got it better than me. So I, I would like to provide that reassurance. And also to mention that the, the research that we do in animals also often benefits the animals themselves. So the animal research, biomedical research in animals helps numerous species, not just the monkeys, but a lot of this can be applied to other animal species as well. So in a way, we're helping the animals, just like human research can, you know, can help human health. You know, the, the animal research can help veterinary health for many types of animals. Yeah, exactly. And I think if there's anything that people have taken away from their previous 12 episodes now of Lab Rat Chat is that these animals are extremely well taken care of for. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, definitely go back, listen to other, our other episodes, in particular, the one about enrichment, which blew my mind that animals are getting bubble makers and popcorn makers and stuff in their lab for enrichment. So I feel like you could probably talk an entire day about hepatitis B. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I appreciate you for coming on this podcast and talking to Danielle and I and talking to our audience. Thank you for all of your work that you're doing with hepatitis B and other areas of research over at Texas Biomed. We really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Danielle. All right. Until next time, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.